0: Jane Brown.
1: Well, thank you for joining me. Libby will return tomorrow. So, Fight Back is on a mission to get you the answers as to when you will get your COVID 19 vaccine, how you will get your COVID 19 vaccine, and where you will get your COVID 19 vaccine. These answers are tough to get these days, but we keep on pressing. Last weekend, we heard from retired General Rick Hillier that those people 80 and over will be among the priority groups for vaccines once the mass campaign begins here in Ontario, maybe even as early as the first week of March. Then yesterday, Libby was joined by the coordinator of the Provincial Outbreak Response, Dr. Dirk Heyer, who gave us some new information about the rollout. In case you missed it, have a listen. So
2: public health are integral across the province the different uh, the 34 units across the province in providing uh, a key key part in the vaccine planning and the vaccine delivery and each unit will have a uh, uh, specific approaches that they will implement and uh, and utilize within their own jurisdictions they know their regions the best and so they will deliver in the, the most effective way, Uh, Whether it be clinic, whether it be mobile teams, whether it be working together with their primary care practitioners, whether it's working with the hospitals, all of that would be um, informed by the specific knowledge of the local area that the public health unit uh, has jurisdiction of.
1: So now with this information, today we will try to find out how Toronto Public Health will deliver the first vaccines to people in the community. Joining us is Toronto Fire Chief Matthew Pegg, who is Toronto's Head of Emergency Management during the COVID-19 pandemic. Chief Pegg, welcome to Zoomer Radio.
3: Thanks so much, Jane.
1: Uh, Chief, before we get into the vaccine process, uh, I'd first of all like to hear your reaction to the tragic news from this morning, uh, the encampment fire near Adelaide in Parliament, which led to the death of a homeless man. Uh, How could something like that happen?
3: You know, I'm heartbroken by what happened this morning. And I I think, Jane, first and foremost, I I just want to extend uh, on behalf of all of us our our most sincere condolences to the family, friends and all of those uh, all of the, the family, friends, and everyone who's been impacted and will be impacted by this uh, terrible fire. We were notified of that fire this morning, and in the course of firefighting operations, of course, our crews did locate one person inside uh, the small wooden structure who, uh, who was pronounced dead on the scene. Investigation into what, where that fire started, what caused it, and what the circumstances were that contributed to this tragic loss of life is ongoing and uh, once we have that information we'll certainly be in a better position to, uh, to know what if anything can be done differently and what our next steps need to be.
1: Homeless encampment fires have become an issue this year, haven't they? I mean, we have one here around the corner from us in Liberty Village. Um, There's a homeless shelter nearby and an encampment in a park, and there have been fire trucks here as well. People obviously are trying to stay warm, um, but not where they should be. Uh, They're not inside.
3: Homeless encampment fires definitely have been and continue to be a significant issue. We We had nearly two and a half times or approximately two and a half times as many encampment fires last year as we did the year before. We've already had 27 of them uh, so far this year. They're extremely dangerous situations. The fires in an encampment almost always involve uh, any number of hazardous products such as gasoline and propane cylinders and any, any number of other circumstances there. So they're very hazardous, very, very dangerous for the the occupants and residents, they're very dangerous for the responding firefighters and police officers and paramedics. So uh, a, a definite real challenge for us, for sure.
1: For sure. All right. Well, thank you for reacting to that. Uh, we would like to specific um, focus specifically on the vaccine rollout here in Toronto. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dr. Heyer, you heard uh, the audio clip there, says basically Toronto Public Health is in charge of its own rollout once you get the vaccines. Uh, is this how you're approaching it based on what he said?
3: Sure. So my responsibility as the, uh, the head of uh, the City of Toronto's Immunization Task Force is a couple of things. It is to, uh, first and foremost, to uh, assemble a network of city-operated immunization clinics that we, we will be able to stand up and operate in conjunction with and in support of uh, a much more significant number of clinics and immunization or vaccine operations that will happen at the hands of our uh, hospital partners and community partners, and ultimately fam- uh, primary care physicians and pharmacists and the like across the city. So we we are in fact standing those up. They're being uh, they're being built. Metro Convention Center, as we saw, uh, actually just operated for the the past two days for second dose. Uh, it of course has been shut down again. So we we are well in hand. Uh, our commitment and my commitment to um, to the city is that. We will have our, uh, our network of immunization clinics ready to go as very soon as vaccine can be made available to us from the province.
1: These vaccine clinics, we learned of uh, the details last week. Uh, some include like Cloverdale Mall. Uh, you've got the Scarborough Town Center, um, but you're also mixing in, you're saying pharmacies and doctor's offices. Will that all help happen in a coordinated approach at the beginning, or will it evolve into uh, having all of these facilities?
3: Jane, I think it's safe to say that I I think we'll see it be an evolution. And that is simply on the basis that we, we know that the situation that we're sitting in provincially today is one where the availability of vaccine is very limited, but certainly as, as more vaccine becomes available, um, we'll see those things increase and escalate. The city, the city operated uh, clinic network, we're, we're planning for, uh, for nine. Um, but, but like we said at the start, that by no means is, is the only nine clinics or the only nine locations that will be available to Torontonians. Our goal is to, is to build and operate these clinics as a backbone, if you will. That will then be augmented and supported by hospital partners, by community partners, by pharmacies, by family doctors. And that is what it's going to take in order to get um, this, this important vaccine uh, made available and administered out across the city and, in as fast um, and as uh, efficient a means as possible.
1: So you can imagine uh, those in our Zoomer audience, especially those over 80, 80 plus, uh, hearing that news from General Hillier last weekend, that maybe even by the first week of March, they will be able to get their vaccines. How realistic is that?
3: I, I'm excited by that news as well. And uh, I will say, though, I don't, I don't have direct visibility on the availability of vaccine. Uh, vaccine is procured it's actually ordered and procured by the federal government. It is it, who provides the province and then the province receives it and makes it available to the city. So appropriately so, it is General Hillier and Dr. Heyer and the team who have visibility as to when it will be available. Um, we, we are downstream from that, uh, although direct connected and uh, literally at the point where vaccine is available to us and can be made available we will, uh, certainly alongside our colleagues uh, at Toronto Public Health, will we'll be ready to go.
1: You're listening to Zoomer Radio's Fight Back. Jane for Libby and joining us is Toronto Fire Chief Matthew Pegg, who is in charge of Toronto's emergency management during the COVID-19 pandemic. Chief Peg, what is your understanding of the priority groupings? We know the 80 plusers are in there, uh, but there are a number of at-risk groups uh, who will be offered the vaccine first uh, once we get beyond the long-term care facilities, which is effectively finished.
3: Right. So, very much, uh, I would say, still, I would say, still, very much a work in progress or emerging although my understanding is, is consistent with what you said, Jane. It, it certainly includes, uh, there's an indication that it will begin to prioritize residents uh, 80 years of age and older. It I, As I understand, it will also include uh, certain segments of the frontline healthcare, um, frontline healthcare workers who have been medically prioritized by the province of Ontario with respect to their um, their exposure to or, or risk of exposure to COVID nineteen, and really in support of um, safeguarding our healthcare system. So some of those details need to still be worked out and confirmed. And those details, for me, anyways, include things like t- specific timings, um, in what order, and uh, at what point in time will will actually be provided with the vaccine uh, in order to get underway. So those decisions come to me via. Uh, Toronto Public Health in direct accordance and uh, flowing directly from provincial direction coming from uh, the Chief Medical Officer of Health the Province of Ontario.
1: You know, a lot of people, a lot of health experts are wondering why not keep it simple and most effective by focusing just on age and work your way down through the age groups rather than getting into... Um, various different at-risk groupings, simply because hospitalizations and deaths related to COVID-19 primarily affect older people.
3: Yeah, and, you know, I'm really encouraged by the fact that, that so many people, for obvious reasons, are so interested in um, paying so much attention to this issue. It's, it's vitally important. Those decisions, things like um, the prioritization and the scheduling, are medical decisions, so those aren't decisions that fall within, not, A, not within my jurisdiction, and frankly, B, not within my expertise or competence. Okay. Those are decisions that are made by medical doctors with medical licenses um, who, are, who are, in essence, issuing a prescription for a medical intervention. I leave that to, uh, to their professional expertise and then really where my team comes in. Once those medical decisions have been made and communicated, it is a responsibility of the teams that I have the privilege of leading of working directly with Toronto Public Health to make those uh, to make that happen. And we'll certainly do that.
1: Let's talk about the process then, Uh, especially and uh, we're interested about the people 80 plus who live at home may not have online access, although lots of people who are over 80 are on the Internet all the time um, may have mobility issues. How will they register? We're hearing about this web portal. Uh, we don't know what phase of development the web portal is in, but how will that process work for somebody who is, say, 82 years old, living at home alone, uh, needs assistance perhaps uh, to to get around? They're wondering, what do I do? How do I know when it's my turn?
3: And yeah, Jane, great questions. And um, what I what I can say to the and I'm happy to explain as much as I know. The, the actual scheduling framework, so the solution, and that will, as I understand it, will include uh, some type of internet or online-based registration solution as well as um, a more interactive, I, I, I would assume it's going to be by phone, but um, both of those and, and all of those considerations, all of those systems are being built and managed by the province of Ontario. We are working with them directly. Um, we're providing as much support and perspective and and uh, expertise as we can, but ultimately, those uh, those systems are are ultimately provincial. And I think that's the right decision. I support that fully, um, because it is the province that has uh, that that large scale provincial capacity in order to manage that consistently and efficiently and effectively across. Uh, all 34 of the public health units. So, so, so the so web
1: will the web portal be connected to all the 34 different units, so that you go on and say, okay, I live in the city of Toronto, and you're automatically funneled to a, a Toronto area of the web portal.
3: That is my understanding. Um, although I will say, I I have not seen the final product at this point either. So, very much, uh, very much in development. I will say that our teams are working. Uh, are working alongside the provincial team. They are doing fantastic work. The COVAX, you may have heard the term COVAX uh, software. COVAX is the software system that the province of Ontario runs that uh, is the vaccination um, engine, if you will, the technology engine that runs all of the clinics. We operated on COVAX in the Metro Convention Centre Clinic uh, as recently as the last two days. It has worked very, very well. And we're continuing to work with the provincial team on expanding that system and providing whatever experience we can um, as to how that how the system can be continually enhanced and strengthened and meet the needs. And I, I have every confidence that uh, that the product they're ultimately going to roll out will uh, will meet those needs.
1: Chief Peg, you've been very helpful. I just have one last question for you. I know sure. you need to go. Um, what should we do, uh, especially those who are eighty plus? Uh, sh- are we waiting for? Um, a campaign, a public service campaign to let people know what to do. Is that is that just be tuned in? What should they do?
3: That is that is it. Great question again, Jane. That is exactly uh, yes. Please please stay tuned, and have every confidence that our team, our strategic communications team, is one hundred percent connected to this. As very soon as we have uh, clarity and confirmation and information to share, we will do that uh, across the full spectrum of. Uh, communication means, be that uh, here on radio and television and print and online. Uh, for those that are online, the most accurate and up-to-date information in Toronto is toronto.ca slash COVID-19. Uh, we will make sure that, that the information there is always current, but yes, as information Becomes available, and as soon as we have answers to those questions, we will make it. Uh, we'll make it readily available to everyone.
1: Okay, this has been very helpful, Chief Matthew Peg. Thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Have a great day. You too. You're listening to Zoomer Radios. Fight back, Jane, for Libby. And by the way, Libby will be back here tomorrow as usual. But tonight, you will want to tune in to Vision TV for the Zoomer at eleven o'clock. Libby uh, is hosting a program with a panel of experts about the actual uh, COVID-19 vaccines, the rollout and the individual vaccines as well, and uh, how Canada has fared in uh, what has, you know, it's no secret really, how what has been a very clumsy and slow rollout uh, for many reasons. Libby will delve into that. So again, tonight, Vision TV at 11 o'clock. We'll go now to Dr. Amit Arya. He is a palliative care physician and board member of the Canadian Palliative Care Physicians and the Ontario Health Coalition. Uh, Dr. Arya, thanks for being back with us here on Fight Back. Yeah, thanks, Jane. Thanks for having me on. Um, you are a geriatric expert as well. Uh, how important, and uh, we've been talking with Chief Peg about uh, the people 80 plus listening who are waiting patiently to find out where they go or how they get a COVID-19 vaccine. How important is it to get older people in the community vaccinated as quickly as possible?
4: Um, Yeah, thanks for that question, Jane. Uh, Just to clarify, I'm not a geriatrician. I'm a palliative care specialist. And what that means is I I look after people generally in their last year or two of life. But sometimes actually when people have many years of life left, uh, I look after many people who are seniors people with disabilities who are living in the community and served by home care. And to answer your question, Jane, it's really important that they are prioritized at this point during the during the rollout. I mean, we know that age is one of the biggest factors that leads to death from COVID-19. 96% of people that have uh, have died from COVID-19 are people over 65. And this group by far leads the number of hospitalizations leads the number of um uh, of uh, ICU admissions and definitely as i mentioned leads death from
1: COVID nineteen, so Dr. Arya, what do you make of uh, the fact that the priority groupings aren't just based on age, working from the oldest age down, and and mixing in um, other well essential workers, uh, Indigenous adults, um, but uh, Indigenous adults of all ages, not just eighty plus. Uh, who else is in the grouping? We've got uh, what they call racialized communities, people who are living in high rise towers. Uh, often with low incomes and with a lot of people around. uh, They've been affected by COVID-19. Why not just keep it simple and most effective at age on down? Yeah. So
4: absolutely, we know um, definitely that COVID nineteen is a virus um, that doesn't impact everyone all the same. It doesn't impact everyone all equally. And specifically in terms of numbers of cases, there's good data that shows from you know the city of Toronto, for example, that um, people of color actually made up eighty three percent of reported COVID nineteen cases in Toronto. And that was after a lot of pressure on public health to keep uh, and track race based data. Uh, you know the reason for that you've kind of uh, explained a little bit about that, Jane. And I can tell you from my own personal experience working on the COVID-19 unit in the hospital, really everyone I'm seeing is either a resident of long-term care, although we've completed vaccinations at this point, which was slow, but eventually sort of happened, at least when it comes to the first dose. Um, it was really somebody who was an essential worker or a family member of an essential worker or senior in the community. These aren't people that uh, actually were breaking the stay-at-home guidelines. In the case of long-term care and many of the seniors that I care for in the community, they were always staying at home. And essential workers, as we know, just don't have a choice.
1: Right. That's
4: why they're essential.
1: Right. Uh, you know, I get a lot of questions uh, in response to uh, the stories that I post on Twitter uh, about this term racialized communities. Um, I'm wondering if it's even appropriate because it's a socioeconomic situation, right? That people who are living in close quarters in crammed apartment buildings, it's not because of their race, it's because of their socioeconomic status. Um, They may just happen to be a race other than of European background.
4: Yeah, so the two are actually very closely intertwined. And actually here in Canada, um, race is actually the biggest predictor of poverty. Uh, by far, when we look at essential workers and low-income essential workers, the vast majority of them are racialized. And I would even add that they're feminized as well. They're women. These are working women, women of color, many people who are immigrants. And I can share with you working in the healthcare system, uh, these definitely make up the majority of PSWs, uh, you know, who work in long-term care, as well as the home care system. And, you know, they are people who um, are working, um, you know, living paycheck to paycheck, barely trying to string together a living, who don't have paid sick leave, even at this point during a pandemic. Many people are working part-time casual jobs. They're taking public transit, mass transit, in and out to work. And then they live in sort of these crowded set, you know, settings, often in multi-generational households with elders, um, which is maybe an advantage uh, from that point, where they're not in a congregate setting. But, uh, of course, when they themselves don't have a place to socially isolate, they don't have paid sick leave, so they may have to make this choice between staying at home or going into work sick. And that could increase the spread of the virus in itself. Um, It definitely leaves, uh, you know, people more at risk.
1: I'm speaking with Dr. Ahmed Arya. He's a palliative care physician, board member of the Canadian Palliative Care Physicians and the Ontario Health Coalition. And you're listening to Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Uh, Dr. Arya, let's talk about the potential challenges that older residents 80 plus may face in accessing the vaccine.
4: Yeah, so there's definitely a lot to talk about there when we're hearing about, you know, sort of an online booking system where we're hearing about vaccine clinics. You know, this assumes that older, you know, adults are people who can, you know, have English literacy They, uh, you know, can navigate the Internet and, of course, they can transport themselves and get to a vaccination clinic. And that's absolutely not the case. I mean, we know some of our frail seniors, like people in long-term care, have mobility issues. I mean, this is a generation that has not grown up with the Internet. So if you're sitting there on an online portal with precarious Wi-Fi access, maybe trying to refresh your page a thousand or like a hundred times, that's going to be really frustrating and difficult. And really what we need is we ideally need an approach which is taking the vaccine to our frail seniors, especially Mm -hmm. for people who are already ill and ill with, with illnesses, you know, that might be similar to people in long term care, such as dementia or COPD, frailty and so on.
1: Uh, I noticed Dr. Lawrence Lowe, uh, Peel's Medical Officer of Health, referenced that this morning. He was asked about uh, seniors with mobility issues, and he made a reference to that it's possible the vaccine may be brought to them in their home. Um, How realistic is that?
4: Well, I hope that's part of the plan. And really what I feel that needs to happen is that, I mean, I know I heard, um, you know, from our previous guest on the show and, you know, how they're really going to bring together public health and engage with everything possible, like, you know, all the resources that are there. But really, for me, what this comes down to is that we need to make sure even at the vaccine task force level, at the provincial level, that we are engaging the expertise of people who have run these mass vaccination campaigns successfully year in and year out. And to me, that means public health. They do have one public health professional on that vaccine task force, uh, but they need more. I definitely think that they need more primary care, family physicians, and they need nurses, right? It's really sort of doesn't make any sense to me that we have no nursing expertise on our provincial vaccine task force. And family physicians, nurses are the people who have delivered these vaccines successfully or, you know, delivered vaccines successfully year in and year out. So we need to engage with their expertise.
1: Uh, On a scale from 1 to 10, what is your confidence level in the way the plan has been detailed so far? And a a lot of it is missing and has not been revealed.
4: Well, that's a tough question. That's a tough question, James. <laughs> Thanks for asking it though. You're putting me on the spot. I mean, I, I would say that, um, like many other experts and people working on the front lines and residents and family members, I was very disappointed by how the, how the vaccine rollout was literally bungled for long-term care residents where we know Uh, We were going through a humanitarian crisis, and we still are. Um, Thankfully, um, all residents that wanted the first dose have at least received it at this point in time. So, I mean, that, to me, to be very honest, reduces the confidence in how we're going to move forward. But I... I Still will have, uh, you know, an air of, you know, an air uh, and an air of optimism in my answer by saying I hope they learn from some of their mistakes. I hope they really engage with, as I said, frontline health workers, community health workers, family doctors, nurses, nurses, pr- nurse practitioners, pharmacists to get these vaccine rollout, accelerating and going. I will add one point that it's a critical time uh, during the pandemic to protect uh, vulnerable seniors and people with disabilities and essential workers because we're uh, reopening the economy, we're reopening schools, uh, and yet we have these sort of very deadly and more transmissible variants uh, circulating and our hospital systems do not look anything close to normal. We still have ICUs that are over capacity.
1: Dr. Arya, just one more question. And I would ask you, if you could, uh, to offer some sort of reassurance. Uh, you, you know, we do have listeners. I mean, we have listeners that are young and in their 40s. Uh, the Zoomer criteria begins at 45. But we also have people out there listening who are 90. All they have is their radio with them. They don't have any family members. They're wondering, how in the world am I going to get the COVID vaccine? What would be your best reassurance advice to that individual?
4: all <laughs> Well, I mean, it's sad to say even I don't have that information at this point in time. And I really, and I'm just being honest, I have to be honest since you're asking me that question. um, I do uh, hope that our uh, province's vaccine task force and, uh, you know, the rollout will be equitable, will prioritize vulnerable seniors in the community and engage with family physicians. So I would encourage anyone who's listening to uh, be in touch with their healthcare provider and um, hopefully there'll be uh, information very soon. We all deserve to know uh, where we'll be at uh, in terms of the prioritization and in terms of the rollout. And as I mentioned, it's important that this uh, this rollout is equitable. Uh, anyone who doesn't speak English and French will still be able to access the system. And we have a phone booking system, not just online. And we make sure that we can transport people to the vaccination clinic or bring the vaccine to them if they can't make it. So
1: at the very least, call your pharmacist, call your doctor, and at least have your name and phone number on some sort of list. Yeah, yeah,
4: yeah. Okay. I mean, I, I, I definitely think that would be a good idea. And I hope that the province, once again, then also provides this information very quickly and uh, tells us the plan um, so we can tell our patients.
1: All right. Uh, we appreciate the information today and your expertise. Thank you, doctor. Thank you so much, Jane. Dr. Amit Arya is a palliative care physician and board member of the Canadian Palliative Care Physicians and the Ontario Health Coalition. You're listening to Zoomer Radio's Fight Back. Jane for Libby, you will want to get on the phone now. Uh, Let me give you the numbers. 416-360-0740. Toll-free 1-866-744-740. And I'll tell you why. If you were listening yesterday... Uh, Then you probably had your own personal reaction when Suzanne joined us from Mexico, an Ontario snowbird who's already received her vaccination, listens to us online at zoomerradio.ca and called to tell us about it. Well, we got a lot of emails to fight back at zoomer.ca. That means we could get a lot of phone calls as well. Suzanne is coming back along with some other snowbirds living in the states who've been vaccinated. We'd like to get your reaction to their stories. 416-360-0740, toll-free, 1-866-740-4740.
0: You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host, Jane Brown.
1: Libby returns tomorrow. How do you feel about your place in line for a COVID-19 vaccine based on your age and your current health and what you've heard so far about when you might be vaccinated? 416-360-0740 or toll-free 1-866-744-740. Of course, if you've gone to the United States or the Caribbean before direct flights to the Caribbean were cancelled and against the government's advice, you may have gotten your shot already. Suzanne called us yesterday from Mexico. She's an Ontario snowbird. She is back on the line with us. Suzanne, thanks for being part of the show for a second day. Oh, Thank you, Jane. Thanks for having us. So for people who missed yesterday, tell us your story about your COVID-19 vaccination.
5: Okay, so um, we spent six months in Ontario, Sudbury, and we come to uh, Puerto Morelos for six months. It's a little town between Cancun and Playa del Carmen. So um, around three weeks ago, the government said register online. And to register online, you have to have um, be a resident or a temporary resident. And we, we filled all the paperwork out years ago to become temporary residents. So then we were able to uh, go online and register. And then we just waited for a call and they told us where and when to go. So we had our, vaccine, our first dose yesterday, and our next one will be um, April the 16th.
1: And when did you get to Mexico from Sudbury?
5: Um, I came, my husband came in September, and I came in late December.
1: Now, so you mentioned you have to be a temporary resident. So if you were down there on a vacation, which has obviously been advised against by our government, um, you would not be able to get a vaccine.
5: No, I have a few peep, friends here that here, are here on six-month visas, and they don't qualify.
1: Oh, I so see. So there are
5: people falling, you know, in between the cracks right now. Right now, they're just doing people 60 and over.
1: And do you mind me asking how old you are?
5: We're, my husband's uh, 71, and I'm 68.
1: And And did this all come as a surprise to you that you were able to get the vaccine?
2: While
5: in Mexico? No, because as a temporary resident you get all kinds of perks. Like you get everything that the locals get, like you're able to open up a bank account, you're able to get things at prices government events at the prices that the Mexicans would pay.
1: Oh, I see. Okay. And and so what in terms of percentage, how how many Canadians and Americans would be temporary residents of Mexico? Just an estimate. Lots. Yeah. <laughs>
5: Because I have quite a few friends in Puerto Vallarta, and I just heard word from them that they all got their vaccines. Um, there's a big expat community here as well, um, and what the town here did was they had—if you didn't have a car—they had buses take. Because it was a—it wasn't in our town; it was in a little we. Leaf- town, a 30-minute drive away, and they had uh, they have, every day this week, buses taking people there.
1: Suzanne, I'm sure people are wondering, did you get a vaccine uh, when a Mexican citizen did not get one? So, in other words, is there enough to go around for everyone who wants one? Or are that's you... telling us anyone what,
5: over 60 is going to be done by the end of the month.
1: Which is exactly what they did in Israel as well, and that has been very successful.
5: I, I mean, I'm just going by what they're saying, sure. and...
1: Yes. So I you, think, yeah. um, when will you be returning? Um,
5: sometime in May.
1: Sometime in May. So a lot, well, could...
5: depending. Uh, we're on um, a two months, a twenty four months. I call it a sabbatical because every five years you can leave the country for two years. Okay. And so we're on that right now, and it's it's up in September. So it'll all depend on what's happening in Canada, what the rules are at the border, because I'm not paying two thousand dollars. To
1: stay in a hotel for three days. So right, stay here. right, right, right. Uh, so you're waiting. Well, Suzanne, we really appreciate it. It was good to get some more information from you, and it uh, gives us some insight into how other countries are giving out the vaccine. So thanks for calling in. You're welcome. Okay, take good care. We have another snowbird on the line, an Ontario snowbird residing in Arizona. Sue, hi, welcome to Fight Back. Hi. Thank you for having me. Uh, thanks for uh, emailing us. Um, do you mind telling your story on the air about your COVID vaccine?
6: Certainly. Um, we heard that the um, they have phases here in Arizona. So, um, 65 and over are part of the phase two or one B is is what it's called. And so we heard that they were opening appointments for people who were over 65. So I went online to the portal. Uh, it was a little bit challenging getting the appointment but I was able to do it the first day they opened the appointments up and I made our appointment for um, fairly early in the morning and um, we went on February 3rd to have our first dose of Pfizer vaccine. We went to uh, the State Farm Stadium which is uh, where the Arizona Cardinals play, and it was all outside. We um, they had different stations where you um, would give your appointment number first. They wrote it on your windshield, and then you went to the next station where you told them that you were feeling well and, and that kind of thing. And then we got the vaccination. We then we were sitting in our car. We waited for about fifteen minutes to make sure we didn't have a reaction and they told us that if we did have a reaction just to beep the horn and someone would come to the car okay and um so we then waited our 15 minutes we talked to the nurse at the next station and she asked us how we were and we said fine and off we went she erased our our numbers from our windshield and we were done and then next Wednesday, we have our second appointment, because they made that while we were waiting for our 15 minutes, they made the second appointment for us. And so we'll be, both be going next Wednesday for our second um,
1: dose. And, and Sue, so when did you arrive in Arizona? And do you have a home there? Are you going there every yes. year? Yeah. Yes, we, we have a home here. Um, well, my husband
6: drove across. He's American. And so he drove across. And I flew to Washington to our uh, some relatives, and then we drove from there to Arizona, and um, we'll be here until the middle of May. But anyone, Governor Ducey has said that anyone can get the vaccine. There, there isn't. You don't have to be a resident. You don't have to. You, you just go and they, they don't ask for any identification. Isn't that except, amazing? So
1: Except you, to show your age. <laughs> yeah, right. You know, so you get the sense that there is lots of vaccine to go around.
6: Well, they say that there, there there's a shortage, but it, compared to what I'm hearing out of, of um, Canada and Ontario, yes. there definitely isn't a shortage compared to what I'm hearing from there. And sorry, you and, said
1: 65 plus you have to be to get it?
6: Uh, right now, yes. Yeah. That's part of 1B. But they're also vaccinating all teachers, daycare workers in the same phase. Right.
1: And are you at all concerned about uh, returning home and uh, having to quarantine and pay the hotel fee and all of that? Well, we won't have to pay the, the hotel fee because
6: we'll be driving. Oh, yes, so of we'll, course. Yeah. So we'll have to get uh, our vaccine before we c- cross. And uh, But we quarantined last year and so yeah.
1: we're... we're so, uh, that, that doesn't bother me. Yeah. You'll get your, um, you'll get your proof of uh, your COVID test and, and cross the Right. Yeah. Right. And we'll have to do that closer to
6: home because it takes us more than 72 hours to drive.
1: Sue, thanks so much uh, for giving us a ring and listening to us at zoomerradio.ca in Arizona. Well, thank you. Thank you. We enjoy the show. Yeah, good to talk to you. Um, you. I, the, a lot of you want to get on and, and give reaction. I do. Um, we have a great third segment coming up here about the expansion of the Green Belt. We have the Municipal Affairs Minister, in addition to the Green Party leader. Very important topic. Uh, but I, I will just take a single call here to get some reaction. Rudy in Toronto, what do you make of uh, the snowbirds getting their vaccines in Mexico? Well, well
7: that that's great, but uh, I really just wanted to call because uh, uh, yesterday Libby had on a, a doctor. I believe his name is something like Dirk Heyer. Yes. And I just wanted to, to commend him because uh, th- this was the first time that I heard a uh, uh, detailed a consistent uh, explanation of how the vaccine is going to be rolled out and uh, and who's going to be getting it. Uh, I uh, haven't heard anything except uh, uh, confusion from the governments before that. So, so that's uh, sort of a um, Gave me a bit of confidence, and I, I just hope that our our government can uh, stand behind uh, uh, the the uh, plans that he he uh, told us about, and, and then get, get the vaccine to us. To us, uh, um, yes. I'm uh, 74, so I'm I'm waiting anxiously. So you feel
1: it. you feel somewhat reassured what you've heard?
7: Yes, I, somewhat reassured because it did, until now it didn't sound like there was any kind of plan. I didn't even hear anything from uh, uh, from um, you know, uh, Hillier, yeah.
1: right. Didn't hear right. anything
7: from from him yet right. about, about what is what is uh, is being done.
1: Right. And did you hear uh, Chief Peg off uh, the top of the show talking about how it will be rolled out in Toronto? Yes. Okay. Good. So a little bit more information. Although they are still waiting for information from from the province. It sounds like, Rudy. I thank you for calling in. Have a great day. Thank you. All right. Still to come here on Fight Back, reaction from Ontario's Green Party leader to the latest Ford government announcement on the Green Belt. That is next.
0: You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight back with Libby's Nimer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Jane Brown.
1: Libby will be back tomorrow. Well, on the surface, it looks like good news for Ontario's protected environmental lands. Municipal Affairs Minister Steve Clark announced this morning a plan to expand the green belt around the Greater Golden Horseshoe, starting with public consultations for 60 days. But there are concerns that a contentious highway through vaughan Caledon. Orangeville and Milton will still be built. We have the Municipal Affairs Minister on the line with us. Steve, thank you for joining Azuma hey, Radio.
2: Thank you so much for having me on the show. I really really appreciate and it.
1: And we re- we really appreciate you coming on uh and explaining to us uh what is going to happen because so on the one hand we're hearing about expansion, on the other hand we're hearing about this highway.
2: Yeah, so so today my announcement focused on uh, on the Greenbelt. Um, we uh, chose two subject areas um, to focus on, on a 60-day consultation to grow the size and the quality of the Greenbelt. This was something that was in our 2020 budget. And we focused on two areas, the Paris Galt Moraine, which has been uh, discussed at, the, at Queen's Park. It was the, uh, an actual private member's bill by uh, Mike Schreiner, uh, the MPP for Guelph, and the Green Party leader. And the other area that we're looking at is expanding and further protecting urban river valleys. So these include uh, high-density urban areas uh, like the Don River in Toronto and land, for example, around Duffins Creek in Ajax and Pickering. So this is a real unique opportunity for us to grow the Greenbelt. It's a a once-in-a-generation chance to uh, move forward with uh, the biggest and largest expansion of protected land since the Greenbelt was created in 2005. So, and, you know, I understand there's other issues and you, you outlined one of them, but I'm, I'm focusing on um, the existing Greenbelt Act and and good opportunities.
1: So tell us how this 60-day consultation process will work.
2: Well, we've posted on the environmental uh, registry um, we've asked uh, people who want to give us comments to go on the environmental registry. It's uh, the email address is greenbeltconsultation at ontario.ca. So the registry in Ontario is open for until April nineteenth. Uh, there's a number of questions, but I, I want to make it clear. You know, we're not going to consider any proposal to remove or develop any part of the greenbelt. So we're not talking about land swaps. Um, You know, the the piece about infrastructure, the previous government, when they set up the Greenbelt Act, allowed for infrastructure in the Greenbelt. They allowed highways and transit and wastewater systems. So we didn't make any changes to those policies. Uh, But we really do want to hear from people. And I I, I understand that even though they're two separate projects, there are a number of people that want to comment about the proposed uh, GTA West Corridor. And listen, uh, Jane, I'm a realist. I know anytime you do a consultation, you're going to get people that are going to comment about other things. And I'm, and I'm sure there's going to be a number of Ontarians that weigh in on the project, regardless of whether they're two separate projects. In fact, I'm actually, you know, unlike the highway, which will take years to develop, you know, I'm hoping to make some, some gains in growing the green belt, you know, as soon as possible.
1: So, what was all of that about uh, last year when the former Toronto Mayor David Crombie, other members of the Greenbelt Council resigned? Uh, we had uh, David Crombie here on Fight Back, uh, saying basically, "Don't trust." I'm paraphrasing here, but don't trust anything that Steve Clark or the Ford Tories say about this—that they want to develop the Greenbelt land.
2: Yeah, and that's that's just not that's just not true. And I and I have the utmost respect for. Mr. Crombie, I, I wished him well, and I wished all the other Greenbelt members well. And I and I spoke to the existing members of the Greenbelt Council last night. Uh, you know, I was I made no, um, you know, I was pretty honest and open when they resigned. I had been ex- increasingly frustrated that there wasn't any uh, monumental gain in putting forward a plan to grow the Greenbelt, even though it was in our budget. And I think there's tremendous opportunities to expand the Greenbelt. Um, and, you know, I, I'm going to move forward on the plan. I committed to it uh, in December. It was in our budget, and I'm going to make it happen in this first 60 days, really put that plan in place.
1: Well, what do you say to people who say that the the Paris Galt Moraine and the Don River, the Dufferin's Creek and Ajax, these are just distractions from the real issues around the Green Belt?
2: Uh, that's un- totally untrue. I, th- I think expanding the Green Belt is a real issue. It's an issue that Ontarians... Uh, I believe, want, Um, you know, I've received uh, a lot of very, very positive feedback where people are, you know, taking me, not just as my word today in the press conference, but things I've said in the House, things I've said in the past, you know, I've been very clear that we're not going to accept uh, development in the Greenbelt. And this, this, uh, these two study areas, the Urban River Valleys and the Periscope Moraine will give us uh, a really great opportunity to grow the green belt larger than uh, any time since its inception. So, you know, I hope that people, regardless of how they feel, will take advantage of our consultation. Um, we're committed that uh, stakeholders, um, you know, we want to hear from them and we, we want to move forward in a positive manner.
1: Well, we do have some listeners who have questions for you. And I'm with the Municipal Affairs Minister, Steve Clark. Let's go to Angela in Woodbridge. Angela, go ahead. You have a question for the minister?
6: Yes, I do, and a comment too. Uh, I want your government to understand the hypocrisy here. How is the government able to talk about protecting the environment and in the same breath speak of destroying it? It doesn't make sense that um, you're willing to build the proposed Highway 413 and then at the same time you're going to protect the environment. It just doesn't make sense. This mega highway that's going to mirror the existing 407 which is underutilized, just isn't needed at this time. Um, okay. It's best if the Ford government spends its money on public transportation, not urban sprawl. This this highway will be an environmental disaster. So there's hypocrisy
1: here. Angela, I thank you, you, you for calling. I want the minister. Mind. I want the minister to respond uh, to your comment and your question. Go ahead, Steve.
2: Well, again, I, I'm I'm disappointed in the in the tone of the question. You know, I, I'm uh, you know my. Ministry has the the Greenbelt Act under its purview. It's an act that I take uh, very seriously. I I didn't create it, as I said earlier. The previous government did uh, under under Kathleen Wynne and Dalton McGuinty, and highways were allowed to be built in the Greenbelt. That that was that was their policy. I'm not changing that.
1: But just because place, they're allowed to be built, just system, because they're allowed to be built, is that the right thing?
2: I, I believe, and if you talk to my counterparts in transportation, there is a need. And that's why they're consulting on the GTA West Corridor. That's a project that will take years to develop, where my uh, plan on the Greenbelt, regardless of, of how your caller feels, mm-hmm. will provide some real opportunity for us to, to make a once-in-a-generation addition to the Greenbelt. And, you know, uh, you know, she can weigh in on, on the other matter. But I I, this is this is a this is a great announcement today that uh, will add significant protection uh, to the lands in those two jurisdictions that I've spoken about.
1: Steve Clark, again, thank you for coming on and taking questions uh, and answering our questions. We really appreciate it. No problem. Let's go to Mike Schreiner now. He is the leader of the Green Party and uh, member of provincial parliament for Guelph. Mike, nice to talk to you.
8: Hey, it's always nice to join you.
1: So I know you were answering some questions from reporters there before getting on with us, um, but I'm sure you can imagine what Steve Clark was saying about today's announcement. Uh, your reaction?
8: Well, the possibility of Greenbelt expansion is not going to cover up Premier Ford's agenda of environmental destruction. I mean, I want to see the Greenbelt expanded and advocating for the Greenbelt to be expanded, but actions speak louder than words. And if the Ford government is serious about Greenbelt protection and expansion, they would cancel the destruction of the Duffin Creek wetland. They would cancel the GTA West Highway 413. They would restore the power of conservation authorities. They would restore the environmental assessment process that they've gutted. This cannot cover up the destructive policies they've brought in over the last year or so.
1: But then you have Steve Clark clutching his pearls saying, no, no, this is not, your, what you're saying is untrue. We want expansion. Everything is on the up and up. It, it's, complete, it's two different viewpoints completely. Well, let's take
8: the GTA West Highway, for example. So they're going to pave over, you know, 400 acres uh, of Greenbelt and about 2,000 acres of prime farmland that we need to contribute to our economy and grow food for people uh, to save commuters 30 seconds it's a waste of money six to ten billion dollars to save commuters 30 seconds why not invest that money in transit earlier today the minister said hey we're going to expand the greenbelt and protect the duffins creek watershed well then why are you paving over the duffins creek wetland uh for a warehouse like the the contradiction here you know um tells me that you have a government that's been under strong criticism, strong pushback from the public on its attack on environmental protections and threw this together uh, last minute to try to distract people.
1: Is that really what it is? The highway here that we're talking about through Von Kaladin, Orangeville and Milton is going to it's only going to save us 30 seconds
8: that's exactly why the previous government ended up shelving it. I mean, you already have the 407, which is an underutilized highway tra- uh, traversing uh, a similar area just slightly to the south of the proposed route for the GTA West Highway. So imagine what we could do with six to $10 billion uh, investing in, in transit for that region. That's where, that's what people want. They want high quality public transit. They don't want another highway that's going to pave over farmland in Greenbelt, and to save commuters thirty seconds, it makes no sense. This is all about benefiting land speculators who have bought uh, land in the region
1: to develop housing.
8: To develop housing, and you know what? Once you pave over that prime farmland, you don't get it back. Remember, it was it was almost a year ago when then President Trump closed the border and said, "Hey, we're not going to ship any more PPE." The Canadians and people start thinking, oh my gosh, what would happen if the US closed the border and stopped shipping food to us? We'd go hungry. Um, and so, why are we paving over prime farmland? We need that land to grow food for Canadians, and we also need that land to create the jobs. The farming sector is one of the largest employers in the province, contributes uh, $40 billion to our GDP. Why pave over the asset ba- base to grow that food?
1: Well, when you put it that way, it sounds a bit scary.
8: <laughs> uh, I think
1: it is. I think that's why so
8: many people are against uh, this GTA West Highway. They see it as a waste of money. They see it as an economic threat to our food and farming economy. And they see it a threat to contributing to flooding and other climate impacts in the future.
1: Uh, for a lot of people, it's probably the first they've even heard about this Highway 413. Um what what can you do if you feel opposed uh, to the idea of this highway, which actually has nothing to do with today's announcement?
8: Yeah, so I would say, you know, support local mayors like Rick Manette and Halton Hills and Patrick Brown and Brampton, who have been speaking out against it. Write the premier, write the minister, and tell them, write your MPP and say, you know what, I don't want my money wasted on a highway that's not necessary and is going to pave over farmland and pave over parts of the Green Belt.
1: And on your private members bill, uh, Steve Clark did give you a bit of a shout-out there. He's added uh, the paris Gulf Marine Conservation Act uh, to his proposal today.
8: Well, you know what? I, I'm i happy that the, gr- the government has uh, recognized the importance of my private members bill. It was almost exactly two years ago that all parties supported that bill at uh, second reading, and has been sitting in committee Ever since, and I've been asking the government to move it through committee so we can get the bill passed and we can expand, uh, the same kind of protections we have for the Oak Ridges Moraine to the Paris Gulf Moraine. Um, you know, I find it uh, a bit disconcerting that the government hasn't done any, hasn't, you know, paved the way for that bill to move through committee for two years now. And so, you know, hopefully maybe today's announcement is an opportunity to fast track that bill forward and get it passed. But that doesn't distract from the other, and it shouldn't distract from the other policies that this government is bringing forward that does real damage to environmental protections, And the damaging of those protections will affect the integrity of the Greenbelt. That's exactly why you had, you know, David Crombie, the chair of the Greenbelt Council, and six other members of the council resign in protest uh, of the actions the government was taking uh, last fall.
1: All right. We will leave it there. We're over time. Uh, always informative. Thank you, Green Party leader Mike Schreiner.
0: <laughs> Have a great day.
1: You too. And thank you for listening. Libby returns tomorrow and Bob Comsick is next with the news.
0: You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio.